How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning back into the podcast. I've been off for a couple of weeks, so thank you for checking me back out. I've got a couple of episodes that I'm about ready to release for you. Um, this one and another, and I'm recording more this week. It's going to be really, really busy, and I'm excited to give you a ton of new stuff to listen to. Make sure that you share this podcast with your friends and subscribe on whatever platform it is that you listen on. If you're on Spotify, click that the follow button. If you're on Apple, um, you can subscribe on the native Apple podcast app and it's available on any other podcast streaming platform. There's also a YouTube channel. So make sure you go to YouTube. You can check out all the video clips and some other cool stuff and make sure you follow on social media at that curious Jones. I appreciate hearing from you. Let me know who you like to hear from um, new guests, possible people that I should be checking out. I really appreciate it a ton. My guest in this first episode back is somebody that I've wanted to talk to since I heard him on Joe Rogan's podcast a few years back. And for a number of reasons, I think what he's, what his message is and what he stands for and what he's doing today is really important. And it's kind of tied back to my childhood because my guest was a trainer at Marineland for 12 years from 2000 until 2012 at which point he quit Marine Land because of abuse and mistreatment of animals. And he was a whistleblower and he's since fought Marine Land in court for over 10 years and is about ready to go to trial finally, um, which he's extremely excited about this October. And we talked about this journey. We talked about a lot of things that I had questions about. There's a great documentary about his story. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. It's called The Walrus and the Whistleblower. And you can follow him on social media at The Walrus Whisperer. His name is Phil Demers. And I really hope that you enjoy this episode. But before we enjoy the episode, make sure you head to the website drinkaction.com. That's action spelled with a K. And buy yourself your favorite specialty roast coffee and natural supplements. Listen, guys, if you drink coffee and you haven't tried Action Specialty Roast Coffee yet, Head to the website, use code word curious, you'll save 15% off your order. And if you really want to save money, you'll sign up for a subscription because you'll also save an additional 20% each and every month that your order ships directly to your doorstep with fresh roasted Guatemalan sourced specialty roast coffee. Head to drinkaction.com, use code word curious and enjoy this episode. Not much, man. It's a pleasure. It's um, it's a pleasure and a pl privilege, quite honestly. I've been following the story like a lot of folks um, since I heard you on the Rogan podcast. But you know, for me, I really had an interest in talking with you because this kind of has a somewhat of a personal thing for me. Um, I grew up in the Northeast, so a small little town called Bradford, Pennsylvania, that's just south of Buffalo and Ellicottville. Um, so Niagara Falls was a, a common destination for my family and I, and I spent many a summer days at Marineland. And man, that song, you know, as a kid, it was like, oh, it was like an ice cream truck, right? I mean, oh, yeah. and now um, you've kind of changed that and I'm glad that you have. And hopefully you've done that for not just myself, but a lot of people. And I, I did kind of throw it out there. I asked folks, I'm like, hey, do you remember Marineland? And I got mixed responses from my friends and 
I said, all right, well, just remember what you just said. I'm going to be doing a podcast with somebody that you might want to listen into because I think, you know, albeit it's, it's this wild ass story and it makes for a great documentary. I mean, dude, there's a fuck ton of courage that you must have to have to not just kind of speak out, but then to go toe to toe with someone and an organization that's just litigious as hell. Um, and then I think there's just all these other lessons that kind of then happen. And I know now you're down in Florida doing some, I don't know necessarily right now, but I've seen that you were down in Florida and it just, this doesn't end. So long winded diatribe there to kind of welcome you on the show, but Phil Demers, thank you for, for coming on. Dude, you nailed it. What That was the, probably one of the best pronounced last names I've heard in the last, oh, at least a year. Um, it's funny you mentioned Ellicottville. I used to spend a lot of time snowboarding in Ellicottville as a kid as well, skiing and snowboarding. So we used to, long ago, my dad had a small uh, little condo not too far from there. And uh, even if only briefly, it was one of the, my favorite places to visit. They actually had a great jazz music festival down there too, that if I'm not mistaken, we used to go down there and have a nice time. So so it's uh, we were actually closer neighbors than we, than we might've realized. But you're not wrong. The, uh, the Marineland theme song was such that every kid in the region, especially even in the Buffalo region, Niagara region, Toronto area, uh, these, these pretty large markets, we were conditioned that that Marineland theme song, like you said, was like ice cream, right? Because it was the end of the school year and this theme song would just be, would permeate every radio station, every television commercial available out there. And, uh, you know, it, it riled kids up into a damn near frenzy. And then their, their parents, of course, had to bring them. And, you know, this, this, uh, this existed from the 70s and beyond, but in the 80s, that marketing campaign was just, I mean, back in the 80s, the number, the numbers of people that were visiting Marineland, I would say, arguably, in a single solitary day or two, by comparison of today, might eclipse an entire month or so's attendance. Wow. Like, in the 80s, there was nothing more magical than Marineland. And yet, what's so crazy of it all is, we haven't even necessarily evolved so much. It's just that our conditioning was such that we could not have allowed ourselves to, to look at any other perspective other than this was something to be celebrated. Because I don't remember back in the 80s, 90s, even into the mid 2000s, ever listening to a single solitary complaint of any individual who ever went through that, those park gates. And yet today, there isn't a single solitary person that's walking in there and isn't leaving sorely disappointed in themselves for having not listened to be it their friends or the, you know, whatever else the rumors out there about just how awful it is. It's just a question of actually seeing things for what they are. We were just too easily convinced and didn't bother to ask any questions uh, back in those days. A nice thing about today, I have the benefit of, for instance, a Twitter account, a cell phone that can take uh, photos and, and videos. And, you know, I sort of, back in 2012, anyways, when I quit, I elected to become my own sort of media. I elected at that time to recognize that the industry voice is, is, is dangerous. It's lying. Uh, you know, there's a lot more to it here in my experience. Let me offer what I, what I can, uh, you know, what I, what I come to know to be true. And, you know, the rest is history at this point. So uh, what's been, what's different now versus in years past is you've got the likes of people like me that are able to have a voice by virtue of social media, et cetera. And you had mentioned, you know, this, uh, this, this, this courage and, and et cetera, that it took me to go through this journey. And, and it is a long, it is a long journey. We're now a decade into my advocacy against Marineland. I quit in 2012. I worked there from 2000 to 2012. 
um, long journey, but the one thing that I have to say of it is in every way, shape or form that you want to credit me with being courageous, I would instead say that Marine Land allowed for everything to fall into place for me to not require nearly as much courage as you would imagine. Because from a distance, it might seem like something that was very difficult at my end. There was no other way. There wasn't even another option. Every which way that they were, be it persecuting me, lying about me, suing me, sending the police to my home, trying to destroy the lives of my family and friends for that matter. That was an inspiration to me. That wasn't something of like, hey, I'm afraid of this. This was, I've got a lot to say. I've got a lot to do. And uh, they just made me want to do it more and more and more. And it continues to this day. I mean, I just only released a video this morning of what appears to be Kiska, Marineland's last surviving orca, with a gash on her head. And you'd mentioned uh, that was in Miami a couple weekends, a couple weekends ago. And, you know, I went out there purely and, and out of a courtesy and out of my own expense, really. I mean, some people helped me out, but we had a bit of a team to go over there. And what's become of my life now is uh, the advocacy is such that other facilities need the similar attention to Marineland. And, you know, if you're a person like me that has the opportunity to be that voice and to offer a perspective and whatnot, you eventually feel like you have a, a responsibility to do so, especially in the face of, of lies that frankly, only I can, or myself and other people, a few other people, I mean, it really, it takes how many, you know, how many people have ever worked at Marineland or at least in the capacity to, to be holding on to some of the darkest secrets uh, and industry-wide for that matter. But, you know, we have, a, we have a responsibility because I left in 2012. We can talk back and forth about how much things have changed uh, I'll go back to, well, in theory and, and philosophically, yes, a lot of changes, but not a lot of changes for the animals that are still alive there today. And that's why the work has to continue because there's still animals there today. The lies continue despite it all. So that's what life's become. And, and frankly, it's, the pleasure is all mine. When you say something to the effect of, hey, it's a great a pr privilege and, and pleasure to talk to you. I, I reverse that and say, that's my that's my sentiment here because any opportunity that I have to, to speak with people, especially people with a, that are capable of changing perspective or are 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 outside of the echo chamber of those who already know everything. You know, there's still a lot of people that just don't quite know a lot that want to be able to ask the questions that they just don't seem to really have to, to be able to grasp. Well, this is where you and I come together. We we are now a bridge to uh, facilitate the uh, the sort of um, an, an elevated level of of understanding of what's going on there because. You know, Marineland for and all these industry uh, uh, facilities, they've only ever given us just the absolute lowest energy possible. It's just lies, 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 which we know will catch up to them as it has. Now, that was long winded. Now you're fine, bro. That's that's awesome. I, I, and I, I do. I actually I want to circle back because there's a there's a question that's been like burning in my head even after I've watched the doc a couple of times and maybe we even just back it up a little bit. So if you're not if you're not familiar with Phil or his story. Hopefully what we just talked about for like the last 10 minutes gets you to go to Amazon Prime Video or wherever else it's available and go watch The Walrus and the Whistleblower. It's an amazing documentary. I've seen it multiple times. I actually just rewatched it a couple of nights ago so that I could not remind myself of the story, but to actually get the feeling of it. Because I think it kind of goes to what you were saying is like, I don't think most people don't realize that it's wrong, but they allow themselves to be convinced otherwise. And, you know, the song or the commercials or the fuzzy, you know, toys that you can buy, whatever it is, it, it just, it's like, okay, out of sight, out of mind. 
I'm just not that type of person. Obviously you're not that type of person. Um, but this, the documentary brings it to life for me and it, it kind of pisses you off. Right. Um, but this, I mean, your story's fantastic. I'm sure we'll get through a little bit, but the number one question I have is how at 22 years old in 2000, do you even end up working at Marine land? Because I'm like thinking what I was doing when I was 22 and it, I mean, it seems like a little bit of a different road than, you know, swimming with uh, killer whales. So when I was about uh, 18 years old, I went to work in a factory and I was two years on a production line, just shy of two years on a production line, which was literally tick, 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 you know, piecework, you know, working in us with hot molten steel, creating these car parts for automotive industry this was not for a creative mind like me this just was not but because I had no direction really as a child I'd, I'd gone through a pretty traumatic divorce at just an inopportune time and and uh, you know I got caught up in some of the wrong things so not to suggest I was a bad person but I was certainly without focus and I mean the same could really be said today but nonetheless uh, I'd been driving around at, uh, you know, my, my father and I had, had had long discussions of what I should do in life. And, you know, I had a year for music. So I went to school at this little vocational training place. And uh, and I, I'd, I'd received in, in the year 2000, I'd gotten a certificate for what was called audio engineering and uh, multimedia post-production, which is a fancy word for learning to play stuff on the Internet, which, of course, eventually, as we know, would become a free download. Uh, the very few, very few months after I spent way too much money on an education, but nonetheless, uh, the education actually served me quite well because in addition to having like a scuba license and, and owning an iguana when I was a kid, it, it, all of this experience wound up invaluable when, you know, my dad and I were driving around in this van and I remember he said, you know, what do you want to do in life? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. But at that time, you know, you had a want ad, you, you opened up a newspaper, you went to the back of the pages and it said like personal ads, it's like jobs wanted. And so I'm scrolling through, checking, scrolling, I say. Back then this was scrolling. I was going like this, it's called reading. But I'm reading my way through and here's this uh, unique job in the, in the area because every job that I, every opportunity I seemed to be pursuing after my education was, you know, was going to be in a bigger city, Toronto area, this and that. I wasn't ready to make that, uh, that commitment at, at, at 21 years of age. And, you know, all of a sudden this, this, this job pops up in this newspaper and it says uh, Marine Mammal Trainer's Assistant essentially the gist of it was like scrub buckets and, and make fish all day. Well, I figured I could live at home and maybe save myself a little bit of money. I'll just apply for this job. In fact, my dad urged me, he picked up a phone. He had a cell phone. He was a pretty fancy guy back in the year 2000. He had a cellular phone in his car and he picked up a phone and actually called Marineland. And they said, well, listen, the turnover here is, is, is pretty big. And you know, there's like, you know, trainers are coming and going and your son appears to be of the great, of, the, of a perfect age you know, they urged me to apply. And so I did, you know, I wrote out a resume as we did back then and physically delivered it to Marine land. And a few days later, I get a call and, and I got, a, you know, an interview. So, I mean, frankly, I, I'd sort of fallen ass backwards into it. It wasn't something I ever aspired to. I remember going to Marine land as a kid, but at no point did I ever say, Hey, I want to be the guy who jumps off the orca. Whereas in my head, I probably was, I mean, who didn't want to be, yeah. but uniquely in my life and perspective, Everything that I look at, and maybe that's not unique to me, but everything I look at appears to be set for other people. Nothing, and never, never, nothing ever stood out to me as, oh, that's something I could do. It was always, oh, cool that that person's able to do that. It just, I was never able to sort of do this. I just didn't have that. But lo and behold, I got the job, and uh, on day freaking one, you know, this was beyond my, I would have never imagined, but I was, I was feeding orcas on day one. I was taking fistfuls of fish and 
throwing him in an orca's mouth. I'm like, is this my life? And then, you know, the senior trainer's like, you want to touch him? I'm like, like I had no, I had, I had, and you know, within months of that, I was jumping off the orca, literally performing in the, in the, in the grand stadium show for $6 and 85 cents an hour. You know, I was doing these, uh, you know, I was swimming in a very small pool with very, you know, dangerous and aggressive animals, you know, that we come to learn in time, but not something I ever imagined, not something I ever aspired, but as fate would have it, something that seemingly meant exactly to be for me. And, uh, you know, that was, that's, that's, that's 22 years ago. Shit. It's a long time ago now. Jesus. It's crazy. I'm sure they're so thrilled that they took your resume that day. <laughs> Whoever's left of them. I mean, look, Marineland is, is, is not recognizable from when I started. When I started, this was a thriving industry. It had a big management. It had a, you know, it had like teams of people. And what was that rough, roughly like their annual revenue? Do you know? Off well, I, I couldn't, you know, nothing could ever be, you can never get an actually concrete answer of anything out of Marine land because they kept the nature of their business and every aspect of it, a, a, a solid secret. But what I can tell you is there were days we called it as trainers, uh, million dollar days. And the way that that worked is if we had, uh, we had these extended, parking lots that they were called overflow that if we opened them it meant we were having an incredibly successful day uh there were runs back when i was uh you know in the decade plus that i worked there there were runs of like 60 to 90 days steady in those overflows and we call them a million bucks because when we did the loose math of how many cars or how many people were in those cars and how many cars we believed to be in that parking lot at uh, 50 dollars admissions and if there's three to four people per car you just did the math and it just rounded up to about a million bucks so you know, they were, a, they were an incredibly viable, very expensive, uh, rather very successful uh, place. Uh, the unique thing about Marineland is they owed nobody any debt. They literally, from the ground up, uh, their founder, John Holder, built it. From, this, from, from literally hand-delivering bags of pennies to pay off the original creditors of the original building until it was paid off, he never owed a single solitary person anything. So his objective, beyond that of building this park, the successful park was always about absorbing as much land in the area as they could. And, you know, they're, they're sprawling over, a, over a, in excess of a thousand acres over there. They're a big property. So, you know, uniquely successful in that they're cash rich. There's a legacy business there, all the money invested in the property. So they are, I don't want to say recession proof in that, you know, they, but in the 10 years that we've been destroying them, they're still on their feet. Now the founder's dead. A lot has changed, you know, spoiler alert, uh, a lot has changed, you know, they're in the hands of a lawyer whose job is to essentially uh, is sell the park. Uh, so they're operating now on, on gas fumes. They've no intention to, to expand or to succeed, frankly. It's not a, a park that's out there looking to thrive. They're very quietly flying under the radar as they just try to get this thing out of its, its prior uh, owners into what is to be whatever the next phase of what marine land becomes would that but, phase be different or like it or are there buyers out there that would want to try to keep it as close to what it was there's nobody right it, it would change there's, there's property developers there's big money in, in just getting that prime piece of land and turning it into condominiums con turning it into uh be it apartment buildings be it uh, luxury homes i mean that's a that's a unique piece of land um, frankly, I, it, when I look at, at the people with the levels of money that are required to actually acquire that, there really is only the types of money that we're talking about in places like land development and, and construction, et cetera. I just don't see a theme park taking the risk of 
of taking on that land, which, you know, much of the thousand acres is undeveloped and, and really difficult to develop land because, you know, marine land didn't exactly maintain the properties as you would imagine, or as, as you would hope. They, they buried a lot of animals back there. They buried a lot of machinery and stuff. So, you know, the sale is, is going to be unique into someone, either be it someone with an eccentric idea, which I think could happen. But, you know, no one's really looking to benefit the community and keep uh, jobs or anything like that. It just isn't the case. And I think the big money is, is in a flip on the property. I think those are the people that are li- likely in the conversation. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, every rumor and every person that I've talked to uh, would suggest otherwise. So walk me through this imprinting. And, like you said that you knew the moment. And that it was very clear to you. And I guess my question to you would be, would that have happened at some point just happenstance with somebody else? Or is it specific to not just the time, the moment, the stress or kind of what was happening, but also you as an individual, like, was there something about you that made that connection happen? So, so that I can't attest to, although I'll say that if, if there was some divinity to it, they chose the animal chose, right. Like the, it, you know, she chose the right person to protect her, but no, this is, this is uh, super unique anomalous. And it's, it's has everything to do with the, the stress of the moment, you know, the heightened state of emotion, the, the entirety of it. It's, it's frankly what you would call a lottery win only, only by virtue of just of an example of, of, of being against all odds, but it's not something we're seeing out in the, uh, out in other facilities, you just you just don't see it. I mean, you can condition a walrus to prefer you to the next person be, through familiarity, but this was nothing of the sort. This was scientifically sound. She thinks I'm her mom, and it, and it, and to the depths of which that even my connection to her might be that of a similar sort of uh, power. Because you know we've got this bond that's that's frankly unbreakable. Like I'm I'm now a decade in trying to be reunited with, or 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 better yet, just to get her removed removed from the park. And it's, it's at exactly all costs. I had to put every single solitary aspect of my, of my well-being, be it mental, <laughs> physical, be it emotional, spiritual, be it my fiscal sovereignty. I mean, I put it all on the line for this animal. I don't know that that's something that anyone would do for an animal that they didn't feel an incredibly powerful bond with. So there's something innate and natural about it that is you know, obviously spread between uh, the two species. But it's not something we've seen before. It's not something you're gonna see before. It's or again, it's it's just the nature of it. Uh, you know, at two years of age, walruses don't people people or animals don't re-imprint on walruses. It only ever happens. I mean, it happens in life once. You're not going to, you know, a giraffe isn't gonna be born today and be like, oh, this is my mom, and then and then run away with the wrong mom. You know, it's just yeah. you know, it's just not how it's just not the way nature works. So it is it is an anomaly. It's something that happened. It's very unique, special, different, crazy. Yes. Uh, but that's exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's innate and very unique. Do those walruses or other animals that don't imprint on somebody and who aren't with their natural mother or father, do they act different? And how, I mean, obviously I would imagine now I'm thinking about it, the effect that in and of itself is sad that Dude, you're taking them away, but cause if they can imprint on you, then what's the neck, what's the reverse to that, right? Like, so the reverse of that is you got a very traumatized animal in a, in a strange space that its only trust is in this alien being that's giving it food, but there's no bond whatsoever. There's only, I provide the food, you relax your inhibitions, and I'm going to teach you how to get through the motions of life as best as you can, despite the, your 
uh, your incredible immeasurable stress. So when you take an animal, a, a baby, and you remove it from their mother, and you break that bond, you steal them. They don't. They don't. They don't return to a level of normalcy in their in their in their being. They're always this inherent fear. They're always in an, in an alien space. The difference between Smushi and the rest of every animal I've ever encountered is she, at least for a moment, believed that that space, that environment, was natural to her because of the, the imprinting. And it explains why she today is the last walrus to have survived since I quit. Like every other walrus will have died. Uh, she had she's had a baby through no fault of her own. Uh, you know, another one of Marineland's evil little ploys, but, uh, you know, they do what they do. And unfortunately, because she's recognized as property and they treat her as such, uh, there's very little we could do by way of, of, of keeping whatever it is that they, whatever plans they have for her, sick as they are. But yeah, those animals, I, I've never known an animal to be comfortable in captivity quite like Smooshy. And I attribute it entirely to the fact that she was, she had convinced herself you know, through this process that she was in a natural environment. Mm -hmm. Makes it incredibly sad for every other animal. 99.9999999999% of every animal in captivity feels the opposite of comfortable. That was, I was going to kind of get to there later, but I, you know, I've been somebody, I've had pets, you know, as, you know, growing up and, you know, I think I have, you know, I've had fish. So I'm like, okay, is it, is not, I've like started to retroactively think back on like, am I an evil person because I had beta fish? Am I, you know, I've had a, I have a dog, you know, I think he loves me. He's running around here somewhere, but it takes a whole new meaning to that when you start to really, you know, and I've, I wasn't like an animal rights type person. I just think I'm a good, I try to be a good person, um, but we get caught up in just being humans. And uh, this is a wake up. Yeah, I think that, you know, it, it's a it's a different thing when you talk about uh, years and years and years. And I'm talking about into the into the millions for that matter. I mean, I'm not a historian, but, you know, animals, uh, there are animals that have mutually benefited from our integration. So, you know, animals like dogs have domesticated themselves and largely because there was a give and take relationship. And then, you know, through that symbiosis, we sort of become one. So you're not a bad person to, to give excellent care for your dog. Uh, putting a fish as a as a as a as a as, as almost like a painting on a wall as something to display you're not an evil person for having done so you went to a store you thought it was cool and you did so you thought you had a cool bond and this and that that, that beta is not going to judge you at the end of the day i'm not going to sit here and say hey it's wrong i mean look i eat meat I'm, I'm just not that person but you know there is something about having an animal purely on display that is sort of weird it's uh you know it's you know people like i don't i'm not, i'm not a fan of birds in captivity it's, this is where I start to get a little, this is where things get different for me because, you know, whereas I'm not going to be like entirely anti-cap sort of like this purist that everything's wrong. No, no, <clears throat> that's not, I don't, I don't subscribe to that, but you know, too often there's like tropical birds in a winter environment. And these, these birds, as much as we want to claim to love them and whatnot, what we've done to them by clipping their wings and taking their freedom and then have them sit there so that we can, as a novelty, enjoy them, even if only briefly every day, you know, that's a different thing. It's just a different thing. So, I, I, you know, and it's good. It, 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 what's become of my life is, is I allow for people to maybe offer a level of introspection they didn't before, and myself included. I'm starting to look at some of my behavior and looking at it as, you know, have I been, have I been wrong in, in whatever capacities moving forward? And life is supposed to be about that. So, yeah, you're supposed to question whether or not you were part of this little evil thing 
and recognize that you probably were and recognize that it's not really that evil, but good that the brain is taking us to those places because we don't know later on down the road that we don't tap into something significantly more, uh, more important. And then that those, those sort of those pathways into these new regions of thoughts might take us to a more ethical place moving forward. I don't know, but uh, I don't have any more beta fish. That's, that's a fact. No, it makes sense. Um, I think about the agriculture world, right. And how animals are treated in, in that space. And there's ag gag laws where you're not allowed which it's just still, I say that it just makes no sense to me that you can't out them. It's, it's against the law to literally go and photograph the mistreatment of animals at a dairy farm. And meanwhile, it's like, especially when you play that out, it's like, okay, what's the, what's the result of that? Is it something, is something really bad that we're stopping? It's like, no, more people would probably stop subscribing to getting their milk from these places or such and such. So are there similar laws in the animal captivity world that you had to deal with or that is really holding back uh, maybe everybody else getting the visual of how horrible this shit can actually get? So the void of laws that, for instance, Marine Land and some of the other facilities uh, bask in is that there's very little oversight over the treatment of their animals. So, you know, they've always, the Marine Land's animals sort of lived in this void of laws. And, you know, there's only one Marine Land in all of Canada and it's safe of another facility called Vancouver Aquarium, but even they don't have any marine mammals left in captivity at this point. They're, they're, they're packing it up. So there's very few uh, specific places. So your lobby is maybe a little less strong and again, a little bit more specific. But you look at a lobby at dairy industry, meat industry, and these guys, you know, they're in the, they're in the politicians' uh, back pockets. Uh, they are in every which way, shape, or form uh, dictating the policies and, and the laws that, are, that we are governed by. And what they don't want with their money is for people, or what they rather is, do is protect their abilities to abuse or, 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 or provide lacking care versus providing greater care it's just it's 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 just business as usual for them to use these lobbyists pay them money and keep these laws out that way there's you know that way they can keep the the money machines moving and what's disgusting about that is what you're going against is every ethical thing i mean look there's there's no excuse for abuse it's just as simple as that when i was looking at the considerations of being sued i just kept reminding myself that Despite whatever NDAs, you know, non-disclosures, whatever, whatever business secrets I, I may have been prepared to, to part with in explaining the, the, the depths of the reality of the cruelty of, of marine land, um, you know, I had to consider what that looked like moving down, especially in light of the fact that they're very litigious and, and, and whatnot. These days, you know, at least in the case of marine land, there's new laws being adopted that are actually in introducing whistleblower protection because you know my the consequence of my whistleblowing is marine land sued me with a slap suit you know they tried to ruin my life to sue me for 1.5 million dollars back in 2000 early 2013 you know an absolute uh a fictitious story that they just created out of the blue because you know it's just going to cost me a lot of money in legal bills and it does and it's an awful thing and and they should have been able to crush me but you know with social media and the likes of the joe rogan podcast i was able to raise enough money to actually afford to sustain this. And this is to the tune of about a half a million dollars over the course of the last decade. So 
I think that the the industry and the and the social movements and, and animal rights movements are moving in accordance to what is necessary to a certain extent. I think politicians at the end of the day prefer to pacify than actually uh, create uh, real tangible change. But because our fight was just so voracious and because Marineland gave such egregious examples of abuse, they sort of fell short of being protected by the government. Your dairy farms, your, your, your agriculture farms, and, and you know, they're, they're just, they're bigger than one Marineland. I know people who've gone in and filmed these places, they've been charged with trespassing. In fact, they've been convicted with it. They're getting themselves into a lot of trouble. And I tip my hat off to those people. It takes a level of courage to, to have to go there and not just endure what you're witnessing, but have to endure the, the punishment that comes with it. But I do believe in a society or in society that we're, we're turning a page that that's just not going to be acceptable enough. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, society is turning against uh, agriculture industry in, in a lot of different ways, mostly in ethical ways, but, you know, they, they try to drum up different ideas of, of different, different points of attack. But at the end of the day, you're, you're up against big money in government. Uh, my hope is we continue to go down the path of, of writing some of these unjust laws. Some of these ag-gag laws have been thrown out because they're just not, uh, they're not constitutionally sound. Others continue, and, and in different states in the U.S., they, they, they continue to prop up. It's an ugly machine, man. I mean, the reality is everything that you believe in life, especially things with cute theme songs, when you unveil what's actually going on in the back, man, like a smiling cow does not appropriate, like a, like a, like a, you know what I'm saying? Like a little picture of a smiling cow does not really represent what's going on to, to the cows in these yeah. industries. It's just as ice a, cream. It's the ice cream music. Ice right? cream. It's just like the orcas jumping and it looks like they're having a good time. It's like, you know, those look like two orcas that are the same orcas, but those are the equivalent of about 30 or 40 or 50 different orcas that have all been replaced through sad, awful deaths. And yet we sit, we sit here and sing songs to it. Strange, man. Who are the other, like... I guess uh, like bad actors in this space. Like I know obviously Marineland, SeaWorld. I don't, I mean, is SeaWorld even a thing anymore or is that? SeaWorld's a thing. So these days what's become is everyone wants to fly under the radar. So there's not a lot of marketing for the whales anymore. There's not a lot of, hey, come to SeaWorld where you're going to see this, this, this. It's all about rides. It's all, you know, sometimes other species of animals pop up. Baby walruses especially are getting a little bit of their time, little attention from these facilities. Everyone seems to want one. But everyone's a bad player. Every facility is a bad player. Every many of the politicians are awful players. Some of the animal rights organizations out there are bad players. And this is a, this is a tough one, tough pill to swallow. But, you know, a lot of places out there are not exactly incentivized by the urgency of the situation. And they prefer to talk about solutions and then lobby for more money to be able to continue talking about solutions while earning themselves a fancy wage. Mm. You know, I'm on the flip side of this thing. It's costing me money to be an advocate. It's costing me you know, I have to risk a great deal to, 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 to be in the conversation and to, and, to make, and to make sure that I'm in the conversation. Well, there are a lot of people, bad players, if you will, on both sides of the coin that don't necessarily want me in the conversation because I'm stressing urgency. A lot of these places are like, but if we're too urgent, then we'll be obligated to actually do something with the little monies that we receive every year. And what we want is to keep that money coming and eventually get more and more and more money without actually saving whales. So it's uh, these days, I, I would say that a lot more bad players are revealing themselves and, and often too often in the form of purported heroes. So what I stress is um, nobody's a good guy until, until they prove themselves capable 
of being hungry for the cause. If no one's out there hungry and bleeding for the cause, expect that that they're just not on that, that by virtue of their level of comfort, they're just they're not they're not eating enough of the of what is necessary for, for, to create the change. I'm glad you brought that up because <clears throat> you reminded me of something I completely forgot. Uh, I was listening to one of your lives, which, by the way, I tune in all the time, watch you usually lighten up something, taking a couple hits, which my man uh, <laughs> and talking music and just all kinds of things. But one of these days I saw you on there and you were talking about a possible NFT project. And mm-hmm. I don't know where it went, but regardless if it pans into anything, just I felt like what you were talking about around and it seems similar that, you know, some of these charities, the money's kind of like, hey, where's it going? Is it really going towards the cause? And you had a really interesting proposal or thought that I wanted to ask you about. And thank you again for bringing that up because it was, uh, I thought, very interesting. I still continue with that thought these days, despite the fact that it's a bloodbath in the, in the uh, Bitcoin crypto world. But the way that I recognize or I view these, these uh, digital assets are, you know, there's something that's going to appreciate over time. And the fact that it's a public ledger, which means every single transaction ever made with, uh, with you know, depending on whatever crypto, but I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a maxi to a certain extent with Bitcoin being, you know, the most important technology available out there today is such that, you know, you look at a project that, that might be a, a charity that, that might be 10 years in the making who are, because of the old guard, the way that, that budgets work is you take in so much money and then you have to spend it as quickly as you can so as to show that you have an operation cost that requires this much money so as to continue to get more and more and more money. Well, this is an old school idea because much of that money gets evaporated irresponsibly. And that's, you know, these are assets that are meant to be, or rather money is something that's meant to be, you know, it's meant to, to provide freedom for these whales or hope and not just this, you know, this, 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 you know, it's disproportionately benefiting humans. So I've had this thought that maybe if everything takes 10, 20, or even 30 years to, to even to be a to be successful or, or to come to fruition, some of these, some of these, maybe these bigger visioned projects, maybe what needs to be done is rather than have a central figure. So for instance, charity organizations comprised of a couple fiduciary members who you have to put the entirety of your trust in to, to manage the monies and everything else while earning themselves a fancy fucking wage. Um, the idea of something that's decentralized is everyone can actually own a piece of it. So, you know, I imagine this tiered system where you're able to donate, 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 donate. Uh, and over the course of maybe five, 10 years, the assets accrued could be such that, you know, if you can get enough people on board, maybe you can create enough of a treasury that there's, that you can operate based on how much the treasury itself is spitting out. So if, if I'm an organization and I've got a hundred thousand dollar a year, uh, cost for, you know, just, I don't know, flyers and whatever, I'd be better off amassing a million dollars over the course of 10 years to try to then operate on the interest alone on that million dollars on a yearly basis. So it's not to go through the actual treasury and operate within the means of a viable, of a viable, uh, 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 program because that is always asset that stays and remains. And then you've still got people incentivized to give to your program. Whereas these days and the old legacy systems are such that everyone evaporates through the monies and very little actually gets done. I can imagine being very excited about seeing millions of dollars, for instance, accruing, 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 knowing that every single penny of what that is, it, that eventually of those, that, of those expenditures will be going directly to where it is promised. And I know it to be true because I don't have to trust anybody. These organizations that we trust, 
they become very elusive when you start asking about where the expenditures go. When you start to see just how much money they actually earn themselves while being a charity, some of these people are getting paid more than what the SeaWorld execs are. Well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. How does this make any sense? SeaWorld brings in billions of dollars of profits and can barely afford to keep up, to stay afloat. These places are proposing tens of million dollar projects and, you know, in the hopes of opening maybe next year, and yet they can't raise more than 500,000 a year and 250 of it goes towards the people that are out there lobbying for more and more money. Not viable, not gonna happen, not benefiting animals. We have to eviscerate the old system. I know it sounds kind of cruel and awful, but it's exactly what's happening with the industry, with the captive industry. This is something that needs to be broken down. It's an old idea that doesn't work. And I'm similarly looking at and preparing to uh, take on uh, charities in the same exact way. Are there any charities for people who are listening that do want to give to a cause that are worth it, that, you know, just based on your experience, the money's being spent in the right ways. So you can at least rest, rest assured that when you donate to advocacy groups, then that's what they're doing. They're printing up flyers they're sending out emails and they're saying, Hey, look, animals are getting, uh, uh, are suffering over here. And you can at least say to yourself, well, I gave them money to advocate for animals, be it, you know, in the legal system or whatever. So there are other organizations out there that at least do what it is that they're saying. The organizations that I have a bit of a problem with are the ones that are promising to do all these things. And at the end, they prove more to be a grift than, you know, when, when push comes to shove, they can't really actually show that they've, that they've benefited animals versus the disproportional benefits that the humans have experienced or enjoyed. I use PETA as a perfect example. I mean, frankly, I find PETA as being more of a problem in the animal rights world uh, than, than actually progressive. That's a system I'd like to see. That's an organization I'd, see a, I'd like to see destroyed to the ground, ruined, and then use those finances to maybe, and you know, they've got big finances, uh, maybe uh, maybe that should be separated and, and uh, or rather shared amongst your local smaller groups that are actually have the that are actually have their, their boots on the ground that are doing things, small animal shelters, and, you know, places that PETA will film and say, look at how awful all of this is. And yet none of the money that they receive from the grift of showing how awful things actually benefit to improve the facilities that they're showing. It's uh it's just what becomes when an organization has been around either too long or the people in it have become too comfortable. They start protecting their level of comfort rather than trying to achieve that of, of the goal of protecting animals. Well, what do they do when the problem's gone? Right. I mean, isn't that no, <laughs> you, you just nailed it. No one's incentivized on urgency. No one wants the solution. They want to talk about the problems and you'll see that more than not, these places will, emphasize the problems they'll, they'll sort of like chasing ambulances like oh here's another whale in distress uh donate to us because we're going to build a sanctuary we promise we promise we promise oh another whale in distress we're going over there and yet no pillars are in the ocean yet so and i got problems and 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 because because a lot of these organizations have, have popped up in the last decade with the promise of addressing some of the issues with you know captive whales and whatnot um Everyone's given them the benefit of the doubt and given them some time and a lot of their money and, and I've been waiting patiently, but as deadline and deadline and looming deadlines pass and they've achieved exactly nothing, it's time to start tightening the noose around them. I mean, at the end of the day, all we did was hand them the rope. All we did was hand them the rope. We're not taking them to the guillotine. We handed you the rope. You haven't got the answers. Well, then you're going to have to hang yourself. Mm. Are there places for these animals to go? Because as we're sitting here talking, I'm like, I hear you loud and clear. It's like, we're not doing anything for the animals. We're talking about stopping it in the future, but what about Kiska, right? What about Smooshy? What about the thousands of other animals? And it's not like, where do they go? Do they go to a zoo 
and now it's like a whole different problem. And I would imagine there's never like the perfect option because they're not going to be able to be reintroduced back into a wild environment. But I mean, is there hope that they'll be able to go somewhere? There's hope in that there are some some smart people that you know have intentions of creating something in the ocean that will you know provide these animals with a, a, a semblance of retirement, a semblance of a natural life. But they'll always, for the most part, you know, there might be some there might be some exceptions, but for the most part, they'll always remain under human care. You know, something like this has to happen. But the problem is, much of these facilities, or much of the or rather, some of these organizations are are proposing these grandiose hundred acre vast utopian societies for whales that require uh, 15 to 20 million dollar construction costs and annual budgets of 5 million to sustain well i mean i can say that i want to build the same thing and take decades talking about how awesome it would be without building a single solitary environment for animals but whereas you know i believe what's gonna happen with enough increased pressure is rather than creating a utopian society for all the whales which in theory solves all the problems and it's a great way for people to feel good about giving monies away maybe we need to focus on one animal an actual animal not just go there and say we we could save them if you give us enough money and then move on to the next no a concerted effort to save one animal an animal that's in a really small pool you replicate the size of that really small pool in the ocean Okay, so you're not talking about a mass grandiose construction that requires millions and, and into, to, into eventual billions of dollars. What we're talking about is something on a smaller scale that will bring people to the cause. It will bring attention to it. It'll be like, look at what we've done. And we've done so at a, at a mitigated cost. So it might cost, you know, it might cost millions, but this is something that's possible. And then you get that animal back into the ocean. And you show it an example of what can be when a lot of attention and a lot of focus gets done on you know on, on actually getting through a tangible release and then once you've got this animal in that environment that's when people start paying attention and that's when the support comes if you build it they will come i mean it's an age old, it's an age-old adage the problem is these days too many people are talking about building and not actually building and so what i see my new purpose in life moving forward is i'm going to be the fire under the asses of those who said they were building something and if they don't start putting pillars into oceans i'll fucking do it myself so, you know, the pressure's on not just the facilities to come together, and maybe they need to, to, to figure out uh, how, to, how to help actually uh, help these, the, the construction of these facilities because it's, or these, the, the, the idea of these sanctuaries because, you know, they got to come up with a solution to a big problem that they have, which is, you know, the, the, the society is turning on them and they don't want whales in captivity. So the, the, the facilities themselves, despite being stuck in an old guard uh, uh, mindset, they themselves have to come up with solutions. So there's going to be a time when maybe we can have a, a, a larger conversation with these facilities all at one single solitary table. Maybe they need to be coerced with how it could be a uh, perhaps, a, you know, maybe capitalism saves this. Maybe the idea of, of rescuing whales and putting them into a sanctuary is not something viable via charity. Maybe it's something that SeaWorld needs to go buy a big old plot of land next to an ocean and systematically slowly start putting their animals in there, despite the fact that they might still sell pop and popcorn and beers at a concession stand for profitability maybe that saves these animals lives yet so i'm not exactly opposed to the solution being that of of a capitalistic endeavor maybe charities are the mistake i don't know yet uh we're waiting to see what becomes of the future but it is whales back in oceans that's for sure what's your gut tell you as far maybe it's not gut but do you have a confidence level that you will get reunited with smooshy yeah, I wouldn't. I, I'm absolutely. So I have a trial in October. I've, I've lasted 10 years against all odds. And the way that I've 
used the lawsuit and leveraged it was I said to Breland, like, look, I remember other my lawyer reminded them over the last 10 years that you have nothing and we're taking you to trial. And over the 10 years, it went from, oh, you, we're going to destroy you at trial. We can't wait from them to saying this is never going to trial to them. Basically, at this point, just we like, where's Marineland? We have a lawsuit in October to come to. You. So uh, I've I've made the proposition and I will remind them shortly that all of this goes away. If I get the walrus, I want the two walruses, walrus, my, my daughter and her and my granddaughter, they're my grandson at this point. I want those, uh, those animals moved to a different facility. I've given Marineland a list of which facilities are acceptable. And if they in fact choose to do so, then I will spare them of the embarrassment of a, of a trial that has no witnesses, no evidence, no receipts for damage loss. You know, it's a decade old example of just a pure abusive process. I will spare them of that if they give me those walruses. If they don't, then it's trial time. So my gut says, because Marineland closes in October and they're frankly probably not opening again next year. And even if they do, are they going to really miss a walrus that's, you know, that's causing people to want to break in and, and destroy the place? You know, maybe it's in their best interest to move the animals. Certainly in the case that the animal's not bringing them any profit. It's, a, it's, not, it's no longer an asset, it's a risk. But it's the best bargaining chip they've had to drive up my costs and force me into this weirdo place. So in my gut, two, two, two things happen. Either we go to trial, I eviscerate them, get, you know, they have to pay me a bunch of money, but at which point I lose my bargaining chip for the walrus, but Marineland's for sale. They're going belly up. Those walruses have to go somewhere. So long as she stays alive, it doesn't matter where she winds up, I am going to get it. So be it with whatever money they wind up being stuck paying me so I can book my ass a flight the moment I know that wherever the fuck she is. So, so I can start another campaign to have her removed from whatever facility she goes to. Or they do the right fucking thing, give it to me, save themselves a whole bunch of fucking headaches. And, uh, you know, Smooshy and I wind up reunited at another facility and we move from there. I mean, I'll never be satisfied probably with where she lives. It depends, I suppose. Uh, but but I know that in her best interest and mine and both our well-beings being reunited even if it means at another zoo even if only briefly that's still critically important for both of us so yeah it's gonna happen it's 100 percent it's gonna happen well i will hope for nothing more than that and hopefully i'm sure you'll have quite the uh media ring to go back but i'm gonna reach back to you when I'll that be. happens and uh we'll have to reconnect and certainly come back on here man it's it's been a pleasure like i said i couldn't appreciate it more. And I wish we had more time. I wanted to ask you a little bit about music. You are, what kind of music are you into? Cause I've heard that Phil Demers is, is quite the music guy. And then you kind of validated that to me. I didn't realize you had like an audio engineering background, albeit like really early on, but are you, were you like a punk rock guy or a classic yeah. rock guy? Yeah, as a punk rock guy. I mean, in some case these days, you almost call punk rock classic rock. Cause what the hell's punk anymore? But yeah, I was a punk rock dude as a young kid, you know, I just, you know, power chords all day just seemed to work for me. And eventually I became a drummer because no one else wanted to be. So, you know, I played a bunch of bands. Uh, I toured a little bit of Switzerland and France uh, back in uh, 2000. I don't want to get it wrong. I'll say 2010 or something, maybe even maybe a bit earlier. But, you know, we had, I, I experienced a little bit of success touring as a band or playing here and there and this and that. But at the end of the day, uh, music has always driven me. And I see that you've got your guitars. I just had a couple of Les Pauls. I looked the one on the right behind your head. Looks, he's got to be a fucking Les Paul right there. No, oh, yeah. not yeah, both of them. Yeah, both so I got a uh, standard, and then this is a, this one's actually a Les Paul classic that was like made for a couple of years. 
but I just, I, I'm a big GNR fan. So I grew, I was like the eighties uh, rock. So I threw some slash El Nico Seymour Duncan's in those. And then um, I changed out the hardware on it too, to kind of make it look a little bit more like a, an old school Les Paul. But. I, I didn't want to say it, but I was going to mention like, you know, I, I listened, one of my first uh, memories as a child in uh, my first job was delivering newspapers. And oddly I'm a mailman now, not much has changed. In fact, I still listen to Appetite for Destruction almost on repeat, but it was, you know, back in the eighties when I was delivering newspapers, it was listening to a cassette player of Appetite on repeat, you know, I, I, like my Michelle and Rocket Queen, like just these, these, the, the more obscure songs were always my favorite, but yeah, Gunners, I would have called Gunners punk. I know people would call them rock and call them everything else, but there was a time I call it, you know, long hair and teased hair and everything else, but man, there's nothing more like punk than just that Ross, that Ross scream guitar. And I got to say, like, despite the fact that they wouldn't have been considered it, there's a lot of punk in Gunners, man. There just is, whether you like it or not, whether you're people, oh, hell yeah. purest uh, Gunners fans want to admit it, there's a lot of punk there. But yeah, dude, that just music drives me. It does, I'll get off this, I'll hit the bong, I'll get some music on and the next few hours will go by, but I'll be productive as fuck. I'll have energy levels beyond anything I could imagine. And you know, I'm just fueled by music and thankfully, because it required, you know, I require a certain level of, of heightened energy and, and angst and all that shit. I need that. I got to pump myself up. I, I prepare for court dates the same a UFC fighter would prepare for a fight. I do <laughs> crazy. I'll go running. But I'm a fighter. I'm not anything else. I'm not some book worm who's, who understands that, oh, the law's on my side. So surely, no, 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 no. I'm just a fighter. They say something. I come back. I just come back. I come back. And it's, it's managed to work, at least in this case. But I fuel everything based on my energies and and and, uh, and 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 my diet is music. You're a hockey fan too, by the way. And now that I'm thinking about it, there was a you and a but was it a you and a buddy that were at a at a game and that photo I saw it on I saw it on Sports Center. I'm like, wait a second. Yeah, dude. I feel like I know that face. And then I went and I saw your page and you were like sharing the story. I'm like, holy shit. Like it's crazy how just even in a like I was walking by the TV and just saw that. It's like holy crap and dude we go to this hockey game me and my friend he was actually down to go see every time i die which is just one of the most savage punk bands out there now they're since dis, uh, dismembered if you will but he was in town for the festival and he, he's like dude i got you tickets to, this, to the game let's go and we haven't seen each other in a long time last time i'd seen him i'd actually brought him to, to visit rogan and joe's actually talked to him a few uh, talk about him a few times on the podcast because because my friend adam actually brought Joe. he's a beer, beer guy with, he's the beer guy yeah oh, Joe no shit. okay beer. okay yeah 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 <laughs> So, so, so we come down and we go and, you know, it just, dude, it just so happens. I don't know what to say, but everywhere I fucking go, somehow I wind up on the news or some shit. So much fun, but you know, Zegris scores this insane goal. And, and uh, there's my friend who's, who's, whose expression is absolutely brilliant and beautiful. It's captured in a, in an iconic moment of meme generating beautiful. I don't know what else to say. It was just so much fun. I woke up at you know 1am and find out that my friend's viral, you know, over and above that. And, and, you know, I should stress, I played hockey my whole life, you know, two, three times a week up until I suffered an injury a couple of years ago. I was, you know, I, I needed that too. I just needed to, I just need to be out there all the time. But even as, as, as another example of just, you know, I wind up going somewhere and things just happen as I was just in Miami there's this crazy tropical storm and we were down there to go mess up a facility, the Miami Sea Aquarium, which is just as, just as much of a shithole as Marine Life, maybe even worse. So I can't even believe I'm saying that. But nonetheless, while I'm there, there's like torrential downpour. So I grab a fucking kayak off a guy's truck, rip half my clothes off, jump in the kayak. And then that goes viral and I'm in the news all over the bunch of the shit. Like, you know, you're walking past the news. Like, hey, I'm on the fucking news. It's, <laughs> Dude, I don't know what to say. But it's something about the spice of life. I guess if, you're, if your energy levels are high enough, 
And, uh, you know, you just have a willingness to let go of everything that keeps, you know, that just inhibits you from having too much of a good time. Man, the portals that open up to the craziness of, uh, of, of the beautiful world is just such that that's what I'm subscribed to, man. I'm subscribed to the experience of just eating it all up. And it just catches, it puts me in strange places. But I, you know, I, what can I say of it? I just love the beauty of chaos. I just love it. We are very similar, Phil. I'll <laughs> tell you that, man. That's, that's for sure. And you know what? I think, it's, I think it's a lot of that. But I also think it might be divine intervention and karma, right? I mean, a lot of eyeballs that didn't know who Phil Demers was that uh, came, probably found your page, saw this video, you shared it. It's just more eyes, right? More people that now know what some of these horrors are. So I, everything's this, this whole existence, I don't know, especially in 2022, I just, I got back from California. I was putting $7 gas in my car. I'm like this, I don't even know what this reality is. So I yeah, we're taking- spiraling into a different, uh, we're certainly spiraling into a, a different uh, space, uh, evolutionary space in, in society, societal history, but even as individuals, what I do, what I do like about today is people are taking, or at least people should be, or some are being inspired to take personal accountability. Whereas, you know, many people are subscribing to groupthink and it's very dangerous. And you see just how quickly things can get spiraled out of control once, once you can have a lot of people thinking the same thing. And this is, this is actually a sort of a microcosm of what Marine Land was. There was a time when everybody just thought the same dangerous thought rather than branching out on their own and allowing for that individual process to flow. I like to see these days, people like yourself uh, having their, having podcasts with, you know, critical thinking, offering people like myself a different voice. So, you know, there's, there's the dangers of groupthink out there, which is, which is harming the planet and certainly harming politics and everything else. But there's, there's a new beautiful thing around the corner, which I think ultimately will be a level of sovereignty where we will each self-govern and take, take personal accountability for ourselves. And once people more so do that, I think the world will evolve into a more palpable place that, that sort of pleases everybody instead of follows the money and the bullshit of politics, because they controlled the message for too long. And look at the mess that we've got ourselves in fiscally speaking, the inflation's out of control and you can blame every, uh, everything in the world, but you know, the politicians aren't blaming themselves, but we know that it's, 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 uh, it's fiscal policies. That's, that is just awful. It's just, it's just, it's irresponsible fiscal policy. And I'm, and look, I'm just a fucking idiot, but I learned this stuff because of podcasts, you know, because of learning about, uh, uh, from interesting individuals that have different, uh, people on with different mindsets on. So, Dude, all I can say of it is, uh, for every for every reason we have to be afraid of the future, we all it, it it has an equal and opposite reason for hope. I think that's a great place to end it, Phil. I um, really quickly, this is the first time I'm doing this, but I, I this is like episode 95, and uh, I being being that it's remote, I'm I'm like shit. I never get like that moment, so I'm gonna start doing this if you're cool with it. But I'm gonna snap a photo. Yeah, dude. Uh, just to let people know, there we go, what they can expect to listen to. But sure. I really do appreciate it, man. And I'll certainly be following the story. I hope nothing but the best for this upcoming trial. And man, I just, I, the outcome that I'm, I can envision, I'm sure you guys are going to get reunited. And I uh, will certainly be circling back to have a conversation with you. And hey, man, if I'm ever up in the Niagara Falls neck of the woods, I'll certainly shoot you a note because I, I tend to get up there. I like to check out the wax museum and uh, go to the, go, I'm just fucking with you. I, I do get up there though. We go to see the falls and take family and it's always like, well, we're here. What can we do? And it's like either the casino or 
there was like some weird music festival, a barbecue festival or something the one day and I'm like walking around and then I was looking for an ATM machine. And the next thing I know I'm at the wax museum and I'm like, holy crap, I, I've seen like Polaroid photos from when I was like two years old with my parents at this place. It's just so crazy. So you might get a random message from me, but <laughs> dude, I'd be happy to host you. And at least I'll take you to places that'll keep you out of that tourist trap bullshit, but I'll, I'll show you a good time. You and the family, I will point you in all the proper directions, my brother. Anytime, awesome. let me know. My man. All right. Well, enjoy your evening. I appreciate it a ton. You too. Pleasure's mine. Cheers. Cheers.